welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Samuel Major. In this episode, we're continuing Alain Collard's Around the World Alone, and we're on Chapter 7. Chapter 7 continued. Thursday, March the 7th. This morning I picked up 17 flying fish on deck. Dressed with a lemon and the juice of three grapefruits, they made a scrumptious meal, which I enjoyed to the music of My Fair Lady over the BBC. After that, a nice nap followed by a bit of reading, I feel in tip-top shape again. Despite a few hours in which the swells were enormous and grey clouds promised squalls, the sea has been rather calm since yesterday. The clouds finally cracked open and the sun appeared. The northeast trade winds are not at all what one might imagine, all sunlight and good wind. On the contrary, the winds sometimes are almost gales and the squalls are quite violent. Even so, Manareva forged ahead, paying as little attention as possible to these somewhat depressing circumstances. Feeling that I deserved a treat of some kind, I had cookies with my coffee this afternoon, marvellous little cookies baked especially for me over a wood fire by a baker in a village which is not far from Clamancy. They were still remarkably fresh, and since no one was looking, I licked my fingers clean. I've just calculated the average time of Cutty Sark on her return voyages between the equator and the Azores, 17.7 days. Between the Azores and the Channel, it's 8.8 days. Even though I took it easy between Sydney and Cape Horn to err on the side of safety, I've made up for it between Cape Horn and the equator. All things considered, I wouldn't be surprised if, on the last leg of the journey, I managed to outdo Cutty Sark by the time I reached San Marlo. Monday, March the 11th. We crossed the Tropic of Cancer under a cloudless sky. The weather has been spectacular for the past several days, and the temperature has been ideal. I've been relaxing, reading, listening to music, talking to my family, and trying to keep up my average speed. It's been a while since we passed the latitude of Dakar and the Cape Verde Islands. Last Friday, the end of the 10th week, we covered 1,315 miles and a total of 12,049 nautical miles out of Sydney. The sky at night is as gorgeous as it is during the day and I can see simultaneously the Pole Star, my old friend Cassiopeia and a lovely little satellite flitting from constellation to constellation. Friday, March the 15th. My meridian position is 32 degrees 30 minutes east and 31 degrees 20 minutes west, about level with Madeira and 380 miles south of the Azores. A school of dolphins has escorted me for the last few days. We've been passing through fields of sargasso weed. Since I've had nothing to read for the last few days and nothing even to reread, I've decided to get down to some serious work. First of all, I've been putting my notes in order, which I find very exacting and tiring work. Then, to relax a bit and also to see what it would feel like, I took pictures while hanging from the mizzenmast as the sea dug deep valleys in the swells. I'm going to have to keep my eyes open, since we are in a very busy shipping lane. I've seen several freighters and tankers. We've covered 1,262 nautical miles this week for a total of 12,049 miles and a slight increase in average speed to 7.2 knots. Monday, March the 18th. We've been running into squalls since yesterday and I've had to remain on deck wet and chilled to the bone. The temperature today dropped to 57 Fahrenheit. There are 40 knot gusts, the swells sometimes rising to a height of 20 feet. 
I've had to haul down the mainsail because of the unpredictable waves from the west and northwest. I put it off as long as possible because yesterday it took six tries before I could get it up again. The halyard keeps getting tangled. I was exhausted by the end of the battle since I had spent a traditional sleepless night watching for Santa Maria, the southernmost island of the Azores. It is cold and the dolphins and seagulls would be wearing earmuffs if they had any. Apparently I've been acclimatised by my trip around the world because it bothers me hardly at all. I am warm and cosy within my tiny domain. The squalls at least have given Manareva such a push that she almost equaled the time of Cutty-Sark between the equator and the Azores. She is only a half day short, 13 days for us, 12 and a half for Cutty-Sark. Even then, Cutty-Sark's log implies that the watch caught a glimpse of Santa Maria in clear weather, and then only from the crow's nest. Obviously, the crow's nest of Cutty-Sark is a bit higher than the deck of Manareva, and this, at least in my opinion, equalises our positions. We are holding steady at 10 knots because of the west wind. I could go even faster if I'm not so set on reaching port with everything on Manareva still intact. There are times when I play around with the idea, reaching speeds of from 15 to 18 knots, but the time came when these speeds were too much for the condition of the Genoa I had rigged forward. I heard a soft cracking sound and watched as the sail tore slowly. There was no loud explosion such as I heard at Cape Horn when we lost the light Genoa. Since then, I've been using the running jib and the mainsail with a single deep reef and the mizzen, but rigged in such a way as not to put undue stress on it. I'm having trouble holding back Manareva because she is like a horse who knows that it's nearing home. We are now almost at the level of Madrid, about 500 miles off the Portuguese coast. I think we'll probably arrive next Sunday or Monday. Wednesday, March 20th. We are less than 600 miles off San Marlo. At 42 degrees 14 minutes north and 13 degrees west, Usson is 480 miles to the northeast. I've had to haul down the mizzen because of rough seas. The waves are over 25 feet and I am completely exhausted by the beating I take from the waves as I try to haul down sail and then hoist it up again to make headway. Because I am so tired, I tend to move slowly and this means, of course, that I am wasting time. It's tough going, but I console myself with the thought that tonight I will be in the Bay of Biscay. Despite the poor sailing conditions, I am using more sail than I should. The boat can take it, and I prefer to have it a bit rough for a while rather than to stay in one place and suffer for a longer period of time. To prevent any damage, I have been staying on watch most of the time in the cockpit. My sleep consists of 20-minute catnaps in the armchair at my chart table, and then I go back on watch. We are now quite near the coast, and there are many ships in these waters. I'm concerned about safety. In this kind of sea, it is a question of survival rather than of courtesy, and I want to be showing every light whenever we encounter a ship. According to international regulations, sail always has the right of way, but you can't always depend on regulations. A ship has to see you before giving you the right of way, and a small boat must always be ready to cede the right of way to a larger vessel. I'd like to be able to get the right wind to take us away from the coast and from these shipping lanes so that I can relax and get some sleep. So far, however, I've had no luck in that respect. I've begun to take vitamins to keep up my strength. Jeff informs me that my family and friends will be on hand to give me a big welcome, that the municipality of San Malo wants to give me an official welcome at City Hall, and that the television people want to carry my arrival live. 
The only trouble with all these plans is that sailing vessels do not run on schedules like trains, and it is hard to commit oneself to an exact date, let alone a precise time. Friday, March 22nd. The barometer is falling, but the wind has died almost completely. I tacked eight times this morning. Yesterday, the first day of spring, my log is full of references to tacking, and the red sunset promised more tacking for today. Today is the end of the twelfth week. I've covered 1,224 miles and a total of 14,535 miles. The average speed is 7.2 knots. In the past 24 hours, we've covered only 69 miles. At this speed, we'll be at sea for another week yet. I wanted to surprise Captain Gauthier, and I had Jeff get me his telephone number in Saint-Lunaire. The sound of his strong, warm voice was enough to console me for having to give up my hope of reaching Saint-Malo on Saturday. At the moment, I'm in a kind of tunnel of clouds, without a single stirring of wind, dragging along like a wounded whale off the coast of Bordeaux. Saturday, March 23rd. No wind yet, but plenty of fog. So near and yet so far. Manareva limps along like a bird with a broken wing. I'm trying to be patient and to smooth her feathers so that she will look her very best when we do finally reach San Malo. Tuesday, March 26th. It seems that there is no end to the sleepless nights. Traffic is heavier and heavier and ships appear only to be swallowed up almost instantly in the fog. The depth sounder picked up the bottom yesterday, then lost it again. Where are we? The weather report from Brest keeps repeating its litany of despair. A stationary front, fog at Usant, clouds, visibility zero. The fog, in fact, is like a curtain, except in those rare instances when the sun manages to make a small tear in it. Usant is still 108 miles to the northeast. We are tacking and tacking again with monotonous regularity. A short while ago, we passed a trawler in the fog. She made a half turn and came back to see who we were. I hope she passes the word. I'm going to ask Brest Le Conquet to broadcast a message to trawlers in the waters west of Brittany, north of Gascony and the Western Channel. Warning, 24-hour watch is no longer being maintained aboard Manareva, a sailing vessel 67 feet long, moving between the Bay of Biscay and San Malo. If I'm going to have to stay on watch all night, obviously I'm going to have to be able to rest during the day, at least as long as I'm not too near the coast. In six days, we've covered only two days' normal distance. I don't have time even to take my clothes off, and this will be the fifth consecutive night that I've had no sleep. I've been averaging three hours of sleep in each 24-hour period. Between the coast and the fishing boats and freighters, there is danger everywhere. The lack of sleep is beginning to tell on me, and I'm certain that I look like something that no one would want to meet in a dark alley. Radio contact is practically constant now. Everyone seems to be waiting for me. Parents, friends, newspaper men. We were picked up by Breger Atlantique and talked for a while. And then, at 16.45, land. Slightly south of Usson. If I had not had to tack, I would have turned a somersault. I have a sounding of 370 feet and, in my ears, the sound of the foghorn from Pierre Noir. Wednesday, March 27th. Tack, tack, tack. It's very easy to make these entries in my log, as easy as our progress is slow. I'm trying to use the tide current to enter the channel because the wind is still practically nil. At about 1700 hours, there was a swell from the northwest. It was about time. By 2100, 
I was eight miles northwest of Eau de Priat. If the wind holds, I will have to go about five miles north-northwest, then head east-southeast to pass between Banuich and La Chorine. From there, it is a straight course to San Malo, if the wind holds. Thursday, March 28th. We've done it. The end of the voyage is here. 90 days out of Sydney. Days which mingled new records with old problems. Little troubles with moments of real anxiety, but also with times of pure joy. Upon setting out last September 8th, in bad weather, for this voyage around the world, my first hope above all was to take Manareva around the three capes and to bring her back safely to her port. I have done that. Then there was the matter of new records, in which, if I say so myself, we did not do badly at all. This is my last night, and I am spending it on watch, keeping track of the readings on the depth sounder, watching for ships, keeping an eye out for the Dover cliffs and gnashing my teeth over our four-knot speed. I've also made our final tally, 892 miles, for a total of 15,427, an average of 171.4 nautical miles a day, an average speed of 7.14 knots. Finally, at 0640, we are in a calm sea only six miles off San Marlo. These were the closing lines of my log, and they marked the beginning of one of the most beautiful days of my life, one that I will never forget. The joy of the sailor's life is based on patience and on the ability to wait. It is never complete and whole until he has returned to port. There is all the time in the world during the long hours that a sailor spends becalmed to picture the return home. I was no exception, and I imagined my return time after time with different settings and different dialogue for each occasion. My favourite was the one that had Manareva coming into port under full sail, cutting through the spray, and on deck, Alain Collat, freshly washed and shaved, becomingly modest, but with a triumphant heart beating in his manly chest. The reality of homecoming was quite different. I was exhausted and spent all my time desperately tacking, close-hauled, while Manareva wandered in the dense fog, being pushed a little bit by the swell and pushed another few feet by an occasional feeble gust. And yet, my imagined homecomings all paled into insignificance beside the actuality. I had never seen so many people, a crowd in which I could occasionally distinguish the face of a friend, away from a relative, a tight knot of journalists. Certainly, I had expected that I would be the centre of attention for a few hours in a small town on the coast of Brittany, if only among those who cared about the sea, but I had never imagined a celebration such as the one that awaited me. In the excitement of setting foot on dry land again, my first step into the Dinard jetty almost sent me sprawling on the ground. My foot caught in the handrail of the boat that had come to get me from my mooring. Then, walking about the people who had come to meet me, listening to them shouting and touching their outstretched hands, basking in their applause, it occurred to me that in my old sea clothes and with my seaman's walk, feet spread to compensate for the pitching and tossing of the deck, I must have looked like nothing so much as a large duck. On the dock, standing next to one another, were my mother, who was radiant with joy, and Tiura, who was dressed in loose clothing, which hinted at the joy that she carried in her womb. After 69 days at sea, the voyage was complete, and at the end of that final week, exhausting because of its sleepless nights and windless days, these few moments of welcome 
gave to the voyage whatever importance and weight it may have. I had driven myself, and driven myself hard. I had worked, and worked hard. From day to day, I had done my best to fulfil the mission that I had assigned to myself. And now, I suddenly realised how good it was to have done what I set out to do. Well, that's the end of Alain Collard's Around the World Alone. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. Um, I did not know really what the book was that I was picking up when I decided to read this one. I wanted to keep things uh, as much as I could, books that other people wouldn't have read before. And of course, Alain Collard's uh, primary language is French. Apologies for all of my terrible French pronunciations during this reading. But uh, it means that his original text has always been somewhat hidden from me. Um, now being able to read this fantastic translation, uh, I suddenly access in a way that I haven't done before some of that romance and some of that beautiful literature which French sailors seem to be able to create and which unfortunately English language sailors, there's very few that write fantastic books in English language about sailing. You need to be reading these French texts and uh, this has been just such a joy for me. As you know, I've sailed solo around the world, but it happened in a very kind of odd period of my life where I did the clip around the world race, which took nine months. There was only two months off, and then I set off solo around the world. It was a breakup of a relationship. My father was very ill with brain cancer. And to be absolutely honest, I was totally burnt out from what I'd just done going around the world with 20 crew. And I never really realized that at the time. But what I do know is that I didn't have any time to reflect on it thereafter. Things with my father's illness started to escalate quite quickly after I got back. And there was never time to just sit back and relax and kind of understand what's happened to me. And so me reading this text, obviously you get the uh, the edited version of it, but I've been in tears quite a few times reading this because so much of what Alan was writing about really touched me and, and made a lot of sense to me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take um, this book back over to the Mariner podcast. Many of you know I have a, another podcast which deals with all sorts of things about sailing and seamanship. And I'm going to do a book review about this book. Um, it'll probably be a little bit shorter, half an hour, 40 minutes or something. Talk about what I got from it. Point out some of the details of what's happening. Talk a little bit more widely about Alain Collard, who he was. He's such a massive influence in French sailing and one who I've only really been able to understand from reading this book myself. So that's going to be on the Mariner very soon. Um, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can help support the Rare Nautical Reads podcast as well as the Mariner podcast, the Mariner YouTube channel. And you'll be happy to know that very soon what we're going to be doing is creating a, a weekly newsletter. It's going to be called the Mariner Newsletter. And it's going to have all sorts of things from around the world of sailing, cruising, racing, but not just like results and, um, you know, which which is the best marina to go to, but things that are interesting. And try and make it that it's as interesting as possible, as well written as possible. Lots of uh, pieces that should open up new destinations, new kinds of boats, techniques, tips, uh, interviews, all that kind of stuff. We've got that available. We want to be able to provide something for people that support us on a weekly basis, and we think that's a great way of doing it. So that's coming very, very soon. If while you're at Patreon, you like the look of those seamanship videos which go out monthly, then of course you can sign up for those. So lots going on there, lots happening in 2022. And of course, always still the opportunity to go over to SpartanOceanRacing.com. You can sign up there for events going from Bermuda to Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia to Newfoundland, Newfoundland to the UK. The UK, we go up to Norway, onto the Faroe Islands and Iceland. 
and then from Iceland back to Newfoundland. And then later in the year, in November, we're heading down to Cape Town and we're entering the Cape to Rio race. That's going to be our big news for 2022. We're going to make our way down, pre-position ourselves. So on the 2nd of January, we can depart with the Cape to Rio fleet in the 50th running of that event and uh, head across to Rio, one of the greatest uh, trade wind sails there is. Basically, apart from the Canaries to the Caribbean, Cape Town to Rio is one of the best bits of sailing you're ever going to get involved in. So have a look for that at SpartanOceanRacing.com if that's something you fancy. But that's all now from Rare Nautical Reads today. We've got a new book starting tomorrow. I've already got that in my hand. Pretty excited about that. Tune in tomorrow to find out what it is. But until then, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound. And I'll speak to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.